I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the April 25th, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 12. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of topics, and today we'll review seven hair research studies from the past month or two. We'll start out by talking about allergic contact dermatitis. We'll talk about allergic contact dermatitis to topical minoxidil. How often do you feel that a patient you're seeing has contact dermatitis to the minoxidil they are using? Then we'll look at a study which reviews more broadly this concept of allergic contact dermatitis to the topical products that we all use. Then we'll go on to talk about infantile hemangiomas, these growths of blood vessels that are so common in children, about 1 in 20 infants have hemangiomas. Propranolol or beta blockers have revolutionized the treatment of hemangiomas. We'll look at another treatment option, pulsed eye laser, and some important points about hair loss that can come from pulsed dye lasers. Then we'll look at hydroxychloroquine. We'll look at the pigmentation that hydroxychloroquine can cause in the mouth. Then we'll go on to talk about a very important topic and that is persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. Many years ago, patients undergoing chemotherapy were told that they'll lose hair and then the hair will come back. We know now over the last 20 years that that doesn't always happen and there's a subset of patients that do not get their hair back. When hair doesn't return fully by month six after chemotherapy, we call this persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We'll talk about oral minoxidil for treating persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We'll talk about a new variant of chemotherapy-induced alopecia. There's two main variants. One is a diffuse variant where they lose hair all over the scalp. And another is a variant where patients with persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia resemble patients with androgenetic hair loss almost perfectly. But there's an erosive pustular dermatosis variant where patients have significant scale and crust. We'll take a look at this new study. And then we'll take a look at some knowledge gaps that dermatologists have with scalp cooling. Scalp cooling was approved, cleared by the FDA in 2015 and there's several devices that are used around the world. We'll take a look at just how well dermatologists know these scalp cooling devices and what they're used for and how good they are. The references for all of these studies I'll talk about today are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin with a study in March looking at an unusual presentation of allergic contact dermatitis to topical minoxidil. This study by Ferriel and colleagues described a 23-year-old male who presented for medical attention with concerns about a red, scaly, itchy scalp, but he also had enlarged lymph nodes, and we call that lymphadenopathy. Cervical lymphadenopathy would describe the enlarged lymph nodes in the neck. And when you have patients with lymphadenopathy in the neck, you want to think about a number of conditions that can cause lymphadenopathy. Infections are a very common cause. When we have viruses and colds and flus, we we often get enlarged tender lymph nodes in the neck. In this particular study, the authors point out that there were no signs of infection and the cause was not clear. He had a history of minoxidil use starting three months prior. The lymphadenopathy started within days of starting minoxidil, and every time the patient stopped the minoxidil, the lymphadenopathy went away, and when he restarted, the lymphadenopathy returned. 
And so this was a case of minoxidil-induced lymphadenopathy. The patient was patch-tested to minoxidil, pure minoxidil compounds, and was also patch-tested to some of the ingredients in minoxidil solution, including propylene glycol. Propylene glycol is added to minoxidil solutions to help it dissolve more efficiently. The patient ultimately patch-tested positive to minoxidil, but not to propylene glycol. And so the diagnosis was an allergic contact dermatitis to the minoxidil ingredient. And so when you see patients that are using minoxidil and complain about red scalp, you have to think about allergic contact dermatitis. You have to think about irritant contact dermatitis. And irritant contact dermatitis is often more common than cases of allergic contact dermatitis. Irritant contact dermatitis can happen immediately after you start a topical compound. Allergic contact dermatitis is immune-mediated such that it takes the immune system a little while. First, the immune system has to see the drug or see the compound, and then it has to mount a response over the ensuing weeks or months. So we have to think about irritant contact dermatitis. We have to think about allergic contact dermatitis in our patients with red scalp who are using minoxidil. And we also have to think about an exacerbation of seborrheic dermatitis. We know that minoxidil, especially the minoxidil solution, can make seborrheic dermatitis worse. And so patients present with scaling and flaking, redness, itching. Application site reactions or redness and scaling and irritation happens in about 5% of patients using the 5% liquid minoxidil solution, happens in about 2% using the 2% formula. The minoxidil foam, the 5% foam, which came to the market a little bit later, can also cause application site reactions. It can cause irritant reactions. It can cause true allergic reactions. Site reactions are perhaps a little bit co less common with the foam than the minoxidil solution. One can develop allergic contact dermatitis from the minoxidil in the foam. It doesn't have propylene glycol, so a person is not going to develop allergic or irritant contact dermatitis to propylene glycol. But the minoxidil foam does have alcohol in it, it does have butylated hydroxytoluene, it does have acetyl alcohol, it does have sterile alcohol. These compounds can cause irritant contact dermatitis of the skin, less commonly an allergic response, but there are several ingredients in minoxidil foam that we have to be aware of. When patients are patch tested by a dermatologist that specializes in patch testing, generally the isolated compounds are administered to the back, the patient's back is a certain section will be given minoxidil, a certain part of the back in a quadrant will be given propylene glycol and any other ingredients that are relevant to isolate what might be causing this patient's allergic contact dermatitis. The mistake we often make is that a patient has been on minoxidil for 14 years and they have a red scalp and they've been fine for year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So they can't possibly have allergic contact dermatitis to minoxidil. They've, they've been using it so long, they've been fine. That's a mistake. Any allergy can develop after prolonged use. So it's important not to have that bias in your decision making. Often the allergy does happen within the first short while if it's going to happen, but it doesn't have to. The other thing to remember with minoxidil allergies is that there's a wide range of responses. You could have a minimal scalp reaction and the patient only has eyelid dermatitis or eyelid swelling. Or they get this rash on their neck in the rinse-off areas where the minoxidil gets rinsed off in the shower and it affects the neck. They have no problem with the scalp, but they get a rash on their neck. You can also have significant reactions that almost mimic angioedema. And so there's a wide variation ranging from no scalp reaction to neck and ear 
reactions to eyelid reactions to significant swelling. So we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about minoxidil allergies. And if you think a patient has a minoxidil allergy, it's helpful to connect with a dermatologist that specializes in patch testing. They can put pure chemicals on the back to see if the patient's responding to minoxidil with an allergic response to an ingredient in the minoxidil compound with an allergic response, or if they're responding to something else. They're not allergic to minoxidil. They're allergic to their hair dye. They're allergic to their shampoo fragrance. They're allergic to something else. So involvement of your contact dermatitis specialist is really a good idea. If a patient is found to have an allergy to topical minoxidil, then all sources of topical minoxidil are out. The topical minoxidil foam cannot be used. The topical minoxidil solution cannot be used, whether it's 5% or 2%. The 5% minoxidil solution from the internet with some other ingredient cannot be used. All sources of topical minoxidil are out. But if the patient is actually allergic to the propylene glycol in the minoxidil solution, then they can use minoxidil, provided it's not a compound that has propylene glycol. So if a patient is having an, an allergic response to minoxidil solution, the old-fashioned minoxidil 5% solution, and you find that they're allergic to the propylene glycol, ask them to go buy some minoxidil foam at the drugstore or a pharmacist can sometimes make up minoxidil with glycerin, water, and ethanol, and you've bypassed the propylene glycol. Allergy to topical minoxidil is something we all need to be aware of. It has a wide range of clinical presentations. So a patient with a red scalp and uses minoxidil, you have to at least have this on your radar or you'll miss it. Let's go on to talk about allergic contact dermatitis more broadly. What are the features that you think about in your mind when I say, patient in room five has allergic contact dermatitis of the scalp? Or the patient in room five has an allergy to a product that they're using on their scalp? Are you expecting to go in to see a red scaly scalp? Well, that's a very common presentation, so that's a good idea. But as we'll see in a minute, it's a good idea to have in the back of your mind that you may be going in to see a patient with a rash on the neck and some scaly rashes on the scalp. Maybe you're going in to see a patient with eyelid edema. Maybe you're going in to see a patient with rashes on the ears or on the back of the scalp. So let's take a look at this more broadly. A paper published in Dermatitis in 2022 March looked at allergic contact dermatitis to topical products. If you put something on the scalp that is an irritant, then within hours or minutes or many minutes, you'll get a red scalp. If you put something on the scalp that is an allergen, but your immune system has never seen it, then it might take a few days to weeks for the immune system to mount a response. Certainly, irritant reactions are more common than allergic. So when a patient uses a product and says, I got a red scaly scalp, I use this product, the odds are it's irritant in nature, might be allergic, but statistically speaking, irritant reactions are much, much more common. Pham and colleagues set out to evaluate some of the published medical literature concerning allergic contact dermatitis to topical products. They identified 99 studies with a total of 3,185 patients. The most common symptom was eczema or eczema, this dermatitis, redness and scale. The hair products that were most likely to cause allergic contact dermatitis were hair dyes, followed by shampoos, followed by conditioners. And so these are the three things that should be on your radar when you have contact dermatitis of the scalp. As we'll see in a minute, there's lots of other things. Hair bands of patients using wig adhesive, wig clips, CPAP machines, eye, eyeglass spectacle frames. Uh, there's many things that can cause allergic contact dermatitis that come into contact with the scalp. But hair dyes, 
shampoos, and conditioners are your one, two, and three. So what are the allergens most likely to be responsible for these allergic contact dermatitis reactions? Well, famine colleagues identified in their review that diamine was at the top of the list. PPD is a common ingredient in hair dyes. It's what give hair dyes the great color that we all love. You have your hair colored. The color is just spectacular. You really like this salon. Could be a PPD dye. That's the why PPD hair dyes are often used. They give very consistent and spectacular color. Nickel is number two. Fragrance mix is number three. Balsam of Peru is number four. Balsam of Peru is an antibacterial agent. It's found in flavorings. It's found as a fragrance as well. Cocomethylpropylbetaine is allergen number five in these lists of topical allergens. Cocomethylpropylbetaine is found in shampoos. It's what gives the nice lather that we all like in our shampoos. And when you have hypoallergenic shampoos that don't contain cocomethylpropylbetaine, the number one complaint of patients is it just doesn't lather, Doc. I don't know what it is about the shampoo. It doesn't clean. It does clean. But we love our cocomethylpropylbetaine. MCIMI is allergen number six. Methylchloroisothiazolinone is a preservative that's put in a lot of topical products and can also cause allergic contact dermatitis. So it's important to remember that allergic contact dermatitis rarely affects just the scalp. What I'm about to say is really important in your evaluation of patients. In this review by Pham and colleagues, patients with allergic contact dermatitis of the scalp usually had some other site involved as well. In fact, 83% of patients that had scalp allergic contact dermatitis had some other site, like the ears, the face, the forehead, the neck, the back of the scalp, involved. 17% had the scalp only. Ears were fine. No rash on the eyelids, no rash on the neck. But the more common presentation is the scalp and another site to be involved. And so when you're thinking about allergic contact dermatitis of the scalp, look at the face, look at the forehead, see if there's a rash there, see if there's rashes on the eyelids, either now or in the past. Ask about the neck, examine the neck for a rash on the neck, the chest, the ears, back of the ears. And this is the acronym F-E-N-C-E, or FENCE. Face and eyelids, neck, chest, ears. And so when I have physicians working with me, I often say, look over the fence. Don't just think about the scalp and the dermatitis on the scalp. Look over the fence. Look beyond the scalp. And as we think that way, will be reminded about the F-E-N-C-E mnemonic. Face and forehead, that's the letter F. E for eyelids, N for neck, C for chest, E for ears. So when I have a patient with suspected allergic contact dermatitis of the scalp, oh, your scalp is red. It's scaly. I'm wondering if you have an allergic contact dermatitis. I wonder if your shampoo is causing you to be allergic. I'm going to think beyond the scalp. I'm going to look over the fence, and I'm going to say to the patient, do you get rashes on the face? Do you get rashes on the forehead? Do you get rashes on the eyelids or swelling on the eyelids? What about the neck? Do you get rashes on the neck, chest, ears, back of the ears? Yeah, I often get rashes on the eyelids. I I don't know what it was. I thought it was some of my cosmetic products. It might be, but it could be something you're using on the scalp. Yeah, I do get a rash on the neck. I I thought it was a fragrance I'm using, or I thought it was my, my chain or my necklace. No, it could be something that you're using on the scalp, like a shampoo that's rinsing off and touching the neck. So think about the F-E-N-C-E mnemonic when you're thinking about allergic contact dermatitis of the scalp. So we'll leave allergic contact dermatitis and we'll move on to talk about infantile hemangiomas. 
I really think that the subject of infantile hemangiomas has so much to teach us. We don't see a lot of patients in the clinic with infantile hemangiomas that come to see me for hair loss issues. But I'd like to review an interesting paper about the use of pulse dye lasers to treat infantile hemangiomas and how they may cause hair loss. But there's very few stories in the past decade in dermatology that have changed the course of patients' lives and parents' lives more than the serendipitous discovery that blood pressure medications called beta blockers could dramatically shrink these infantile hemangiomas or these red blood vessel growths on the skin of these infants. So let's take a look at this. You've probably seen individuals with infantile hemangiomas, perhaps someone in your family, perhaps your patients, perhaps clients, perhaps your neighbors. They're very common. One out of every 20 children have these infantile hemangiomas, sometimes called strawberry hemangiomas when they're superficial. They're growths of blood vessels. They're not cancers, so they're benign growths of blood vessels. They're a type of birthmark. And in fact, they're one of the most common tumors of infants. They can appear anywhere. When they appear on the scalp, they're often watched and monitored, but they can be treated nowadays with beta blockers, as we'll review in a minute. When they occur on the eyelids, the nose, around the mouth, and other more sensitive areas that could affect sight and breathing and smell and hearing, they're treated more aggressively. We need to shrink these hemangiomas so that the baby's sight can develop properly, their hearing can develop properly, their eating can develop properly, their breathing can develop properly. And so there's very much an urgency when these hemangiomas are in sensitive areas. Girls are affected more than boys. Caucasian children are more affected than other backgrounds. Premature babies might be at slightly increased risk to develop these hemangiomas, and low birth weight babies are also at increased risk to develop these hemangiomas. These blood vessels are receiving signals to grow to a larger extent than they should be. They may appear at birth or within a few weeks after birth, and they can be quite scary for parents to see that these red growths are happening on the skin. And when they happen over the eyelid, over the face, over the mouth, in other areas, it's really quite scary. They go through various phases. The first several months, they grow very fast. We call that the proliferative phase. And by about month three, most pediatricians say that the hemangioma has reached about 80% of its maximal size, but they may grow till about month five. And most hemangiomas stop growing around month five and then they involute. And by about year one, the hemangioma has, has began its, its shrinking process quite significantly, but often more, uh, much earlier than that. But the involution can happen over many years. And so it may shrink from year one, year two, year three, year four. But it's a slow process by which these hemangiomas shrink. And sometimes when hemangiomas disappear or shrink, they don't disappear fully and they're left with some sort of scar tissue or extra blood vessels or some extra kind of baggy-like material at the site of where the hemangioma once was. There are superficial hemangiomas, which are often called strawberry hemangiomas, which grow just under the skin. And then there's deeper hemangiomas that appear purplish or bluish and are much deeper in the skin. And these hemangiomas can affect other organs as well. They can appear in the liver and they can appear in other organs. And so how are they treated? Well, some aren't treated. Some are left to resolve on their own, especially if they occur in an area that is away from any important structural area, like the eyelids or the nose or the face or the mouth. But beta blockers are now used as first-line agents. And years ago, there was no such thing as beta blockers for treating infantile hemangiomas. And patients with these hemangiomas were treated with 
oral steroids. They were treated with chemotherapy-like agents to try to shrink these blood vessels. These were difficult discussions. These treatments had significant side effects, but they were difficult conversations to have with parents. But in 2008, things changed. The world changed. Laute Labrisi published a study in the New England Journal of Medicine outlining a patient, a male patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who was treated with propranolol, a beta blocker for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The male happened to also have hemangiomas, and the hemangiomas shrunk. And Laute Labrisi went on to report their findings with 10 other patients who were effectively treated with propranolol for infantile hemangiomas. And after that, there were some 150 studies that were published in the medical literature looking at the use of beta blockers orally, as well as topically, for these infantile hemangiomas. This revolutionized the field, and ultimately in 2014, propranolol was FDA-approved for treatment of infantile hemangiomas. And it revolutionized the treatment of these very challenging conditions. So sometimes we also employ pulse-dye lasers to treat hemangiomas. Beta blockers are the first-line agents. They're the most effective agents. Not every child, not every infant can use beta blockers. But sometimes pulse-dye lasers are combined with beta blockers for even more effective resolution of these hemangiomas. So pulse-dye lasers are lasers that target blood vessel growths. They have a wavelength of 595 nanometers, and they target hemoglobin. And they denature hemoglobin in a way that it embolizes in blood vessels, and that's what clears these blood vessel proliferations. But they also target melanin. They also target the pigment melanin. And it's thought that the pulse-dye laser's targeting of melanin is what leads to hair loss because there's melanin in hair follicles. So Yang and colleagues set out to evaluate if infants having pulse-dye laser treatments for their infantile hemangiomas were more likely to develop permanent hair loss. So they identified 47 patients with infantile scalp hemangiomas who received pulse-dye laser treatments. There were 14 boys and 13 girls in this study. The mean age was 4.5 months. In about a third of these infants, the hair returned back to normal after the pulse dye laser treatment. But in 46% of infants, there was still some hair loss. All the hair did not regrow. And in 14.9% of infants, there was no regrowth. And so the authors concluded that these pulse dye lasers can indeed contribute to hair loss when being used for treatment of infantile hemangiomas. And they showed that young infants, less than three months, were more likely to have long-term hair loss. And so very young age was a risk factor for permanent hair loss. So all in all, this study reminds us that pulse-dye lasers for scalp hemangiomas are certainly an option. They are being studied right now for combination with beta blockers, propranolol and topical beta blockers like timolol, but they probably should be delayed for use in slightly older individuals because of the risk of hair loss in very young infants. And so before we leave the pulse dye laser literature, I want to remind you of another study which is really important. Pulse dye lasers are used to treat several types of blood vessel growths. They're used for hemangiomas, as I mentioned, but they're also used for treating port wine stains or these capillary malformations that can occur on the face and in the scalp. And Feldstein and colleagues published a study in 2014 looking at whether pulse dye lasers can contribute to hair loss. They surveyed attendees at the 2014 Society for Pediatric Dermatology meeting. And the survey was designed to evaluate factors that contribute to hair loss in individuals having pulse dye laser treatment for port wine stains. Port wine stains are a type of blood vessel abnormality. They're capillary malformations, slightly different than hemangiomas. 54 pediatric dermatologists completed the survey in this Feldstein 2014 study. 86% had used pulse dye laser treatments for port wine stains of the eyebrow, 
80% used it for port wine stains of the scalp. And a quarter of respondents used pulse dye lasers in hair-bearing areas, had at least one of their patients developing long-term hair loss with pulse dye lasers. And so the point of these studies is to remind us that pulse dye lasers to treat blood vessel abnormalities can cause hair loss. And we need to counsel patients about this. We need to counsel parents about this. We need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of the treatments that we administer and how they can cause hair loss. When you're using pulse dye laser for a blood vessel abnormality on the eyebrow, you need to counsel patients that their child may lose eyebrow hair. When you're using liquid nitrogen to treat an actinic keratosis on the eyebrow in a 68-year-old woman, you need to counsel the patient that most likely it won't cause hair loss of your eyebrow, but it might. So we need to be aware of the treatments that we administer and their ability to cause hair loss. And pulse dye laser is one of them. So let's move on now to talk about hydroxychloroquine and a side effect that we don't talk about a lot, and that is oral pigmentation. When you counsel patients about hydroxychloroquine use, we talk a lot about the retinopathy that it may cause. Patients are often aware of that. We use hydroxychloroquine for treating scarring alopecia, including lichen plano pilaris, frontal fibrosing alopecia, discoid lupus, pseudopallad, systemic lupus, dermatomyositis. And when you sit face-to-face -face with patients and say, you know what, I'd like you to consider hydroxychloroquine for your hair loss, it may cause retinopathy. 1% chance in the first few years goes up to 2% chance by year 10. But nevertheless, we need you to have eye exams. It rarely can change your blood count, so we'll need to get blood counts. It very rarely can change your liver enzymes, so we'll need to measure your liver enzymes periodically. There are other side effects we need to counsel about. Pigmentation is one of them. It very rarely causes a darkening of the skin because Plaquenil and hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil is the trade name for a popular brand, hydroxychloroquine is the generic. Hydroxychloroquine combined melanin and it can cause this dirty-like pigmentation in the skin. Combine melanin and retinal pigment in the back of the eye, and that's why it causes the retinal side effects. But it can also bind melanin in the roof of the mouth, and that's why it can cause oral pigmentation. Sometimes the gum as well, but the roof of the mouth is the most common site. And so these authors set out to look more at this side effect of oral pigmentation. This comes about because hydroxychloroquine binds melanin. And so when you remember this, you'll remember to talk about not only the retinal side effects of Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine, but also the skin pigmentation and the pigmentation in the mouth. So Silva and colleagues set out to evaluate the occurrence of oral pigmentation induced by chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine to understand more about this phenomenon. They looked in the literature, all the published studies in the past, and found 19 eligible studies. 16 were case reports, two were case controls, and one was cross-sectional. There were 44 cases of pigmentation of the mouth with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. What is the number one site in the mouth of pigmentation with the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine? It is the hard palate. The hard palate is the part of the mouth just behind the upper teeth. As you go further back towards the throat, you get to the soft palate. But it's the hard palate that tends to get this pigmentation. Site number two is the buccal mucosa, or the sides of the mouth, the insides of the cheeks. And it's often a bluish-gray discoloration, but it can be other discoloration colors as well. And so when you look in the mouth, you don't get the patient to open up, say, ah, you're staring at the soft palate. You get the patient to open up and look up to the ceiling. Then you're staring at the hard palate, which is just behind the front teeth. And so the authors point out that this pigmentation usually takes a while to develop, usually takes years, but it can occur as early as six months. And so if you see a patient back and you say, how you doing? Any vision changes? Nope. Did you see your eye doctor? Yep. 
How are your blood tests for your liver enzymes and your basic hemoglobin? Doc, I forgot to get that done. Okay, please get that done. Now open your mouth. No pigmentation in the gums. I'm looking at your skin. No pigmentation on the skin. Looks like everything's fine. That's a little bit early to be searching for pigmentation. Of course, it's reasonable to look at. But the pigmentation sometimes takes years to develop. And so we need to continue to do this at, at multiple follow-up visits to see if this pigmentation is developing. It's not serious when it happens on the skin or in the mouth, but it can be cosmetically unacceptable for some patients, to, especially on the skin, to develop this pigmentation. But it's not serious when it occurs in the mouth. How common does it occur? Well, it's probably more common with chloroquine than hydroxychloroquine because chloroquine binds melanin much better but it's thought to occur in about 7 to 10% of patients. It's not really clear what are the risk factors to develop this kind of pigmentation, but it's thought that trauma may predispose to development. So if a patient has scars on the face, they may be a little more likely to develop hydroxychloroquine-induced hyperpigmentation. The use of blood thinners might be a risk factor. The use of steroids might be a risk factor but most takes a while to develop. What's really important about the pigmentation issue is it doesn't really seem to depend on dose. That patients can develop pigmentation in the mouth or in the skin, even after minimal doses. Whereas the eye retinopathy side effect of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is very much dependent on dose. There's a little bit of a risk in year 1 to 5, a little bit in year 2 to 10, but in year 10 to 20, the risk increases significantly. About 20% of patients can have retinopathy after long-term use. And so the risk of retinopathy really increases with the cumulative dose, but that's not true with the mouth and skin pigmentation. So finally, let's talk about chemotherapy-induced hair loss and some really important principles I'd like you to know about when we talk about chemotherapy-induced hair loss. There's two types of hair loss that can happen with chemotherapy. One you're probably very familiar with and the other you might be a little bit less familiar with. The first type is temporary chemotherapy-induced alopecia. About 70% of chemotherapy drugs cause hair loss. It happens a few weeks after the chemotherapy is administered. Patients develop hair loss, hair shedding, hair breakage. It's an antigen effluvium, as well as a dystrophic type effluvium. It can be a telogen effluvium. But patients lose hair rapidly. Once the chemotherapy is stopped, the hair starts growing back rapidly in most cases, and in four to five months, the hair is back. It takes a while for it to become long, of course. So if you have shoulder-length hair, that'll take a year and a half to two years to get that shoulder-length hair. But the hair is filling in thick all through the scalp after four or five months. Persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, or PCIA, is something very different. It refers to a failure of the hair to grow back fully at month six. And so if you have a patient who stopped chemotherapy six months ago and you ask them, do you think you got all your hair back? Do you think your hair is as thick today as it was before you had chemotherapy? If the patient says, no, my hair is not as thick. I ended my chemo six months ago, but I didn't get my hair all back. That's persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, or PCIA. And over the last 20 years, this has become much more of a recognized issue. And it was not recognized before. And in the early days of understanding PCIA, there were many patients who were of the impression that they would get all their hair back. And many clinicians were of the opinion that that is the norm to get all the hair back. And many cancer clinics around the world were of that view as well. But we've learned in the last 20 years, especially 15, that some drugs, paclitaxel, docetaxel, used in breast cancer, busulfan, cisplatinum, certain chemotherapy drugs, cyclophosphamide, 
can lead to PCIA or persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. So a whole list of drugs that are recognized as being common inducers of PCIA. Now, they don't happen with all patients. But busulfan, paclitaxel, docetaxel, cyclophosphamide, thiotipa, melphalan, carboplatinum, cisplatinum, these are all on the list of drugs that can cause PCIA. Now, there's several clinical presentations that have been realized over the last few years. Most patients develop a diffuse hair loss if they're going to develop PCIA. And what we mean by a diffuse hair loss is there's thinning in the back, in the front, in the sides, in the top. There's just thinning all over. The patient didn't get their hair back, but there's thinning all over. There's a pattern that looks exactly like female pattern hair loss. There's hair loss in the middle of the scalp, it's non-inflammatory looking. The scalp is normal color. That's the androgenetic hair loss, female pattern hair loss type. There's a male pattern type where you get hair loss in the temples and in the vertex. There's a patchy type which resembles alopecia areata. Some authors recently have suggested a scarring type that may resemble frontal fibrosing alopecia and a newer type, an erosive pustular dermatosis type that we'll talk about as well. But not everyone with PCIA looks the same. But any patient who fails to get the hair back by month six after stopping chemotherapy has PCIA. The biopsies show a reduction in density. There's less hair in the biopsy. There's some vellus hairs. So the hairs become smaller and thinner. And it looks just like androgenetic hair loss. And so if you have a patient with PCIA and you do a biopsy and the pathologist says, your patient has androgenetic hair loss, you do not necessarily go to the patient and say, your biopsy came back showing androgenetic hair loss. It's your job to interpret the biopsies. Biopsies are never, ever the final answer. And that's an important principle we'll talk about many times here on our podcast. But the bottom line of a biopsy report is never, ever the final answer. You need to take the biopsy report, combine it with what you found on history, combine it with what you found when you examined the scalp, and you come up with the final line. You come up with the final diagnosis. And so you would say, your biopsy report showed features of an androgenetic alopecia type of permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. You have PCIA, comma, androgenetic alopecia type. Biopsies are also non-inflammatory, non-scarring, for the most part. There are these scarring subtypes that are being discovered. And there are some PCIA subtypes that do have some inflammation in the base, just like alopecia areata. So we're learning a lot about PCIA. But I'd like to share with you this really remarkable study in JAD case reports from February, which shows us and teaches us that PCIA stands for persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia and not permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We used to call it permanent chemotherapy alopecia because we didn't think it could grow back. But the name changed to persistent because it was realized that it's not always permanent, so we need a better word. And we want to keep the PCIA acronym. We don't want to get rid of that. So we changed it from permanent to persistent. So here's a nice case report of PCIA that improved with oral minoxidil. So the patient was a 41-year-old Caucasian woman diagnosed with lymphoma. She was treated with a standard protocol for um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma called the EPOC-RX protocol, which includes etoposide, vincristine, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, prednisone, rituximab. There's some drugs in that list that you might recall were on our list of PCIA. And this patient experienced full hair loss after being administered these chemotherapy agents, but she regrew all her hair back. So these drugs did not cause PCIA. But two years later, unfortunately, this patient developed AML or acute myeloid leukemia, 
which can be a side effect of some of these chemotherapy agents. One of the side effects that can occur is a second cancer. And so she was treated again with chemotherapy agents, busulfan, cyclophosphamide. This was not successful. She was treated with cetirabine, followed by having a allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. She was given cyclosporin, methotrexate, antithymocyte globulin to prevent graft-versus-host disease, and she experienced very significant hair loss this time throughout the entire scalp. And the hair loss was thought to be permanent. She did not get any regrowth, and she elected to wear a scalp prosthesis or wig because of the significant hair loss that she experienced. She had a punch biopsy which showed that there were some miniaturized hairs, a reduction in hair follicles, but no inflammation, no fibrosis. Very typical of what we see in the histology of PCIA. She was given topical minoxidil. She didn't improve. She was given prednisone. Didn't improve. And this paper is published in JAD Case Reports. It's available free online. The references are, of course, in the show notes, but the pictures, the photos are available with Creative Commons license. The hair loss was very significant. The patient two years later went to seek more advice. She was started on low-dose oral minoxidil at 1.25 milligrams. After three months, the dose was increased to 2.5 milligrams. After three more months, the dose was increased to 3.75 milligrams. And three more months after that, it was increased to 5 milligrams. And I'll explain in a minute why that three-month delay before you increase the dose is so important. It's a point not to be missed here. But at the end, she had complete hair regrowth. In fact, she had such significant regrowth, she was able to remove her scalp prosthesis. She is remaining on low-dose oral minoxidil, 5 milligrams. She's been stable. And she's had a remarkable improvement in her density. And you can see the after photos in this paper as well. It's in JAD case reports. Permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia after hematopoietic stem cell transplantation treated with low-dose oral minoxidil. So there's been several studies in the literature about the use of oral minoxidil for PCIA. So this isn't the first, but it is a very nice study. And it's got some important lessons for us, so I'd like to review. There's a whole new world of oral minoxidil. We use oral minoxidil in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We use it in manilothrix. We use it in a whole bunch of conditions, loose antigen syndrome. You really need to understand low-dose oral minoxidil well. It most certainly causes side effects. Fortunately, side effects are manageable. And if you start out at the right doses and you go slow, and you stay low, you can often have great success. If you start out quickly, high doses, move fast, you can gain a lot of hair back quickly. But you can also gain a lot of side effects quickly. So you need to know about low-dose oral minoxidil really well, and we'll spend a lot of time together talking about low-dose oral minoxidil, but let's just touch upon two studies. Last year, one by uh, Dr. Sergio Vano, published in the JAD, and another one by Dr. Sanabria and colleagues, published in the JAD. Dr. Sanabria's publication was of 435 patients. Uh, Sergio's paper was of 1,404 patients. So in Dr. Ivano's paper, hypertrichosis was a side effect in 15% of patients, headaches in 0.4, swelling in the feet in 1.3, heart palpitations in 0.9, and swelling around the eyelids in 0.3%. Dr. Sanabria's study was a little bit different statistics. Hypertrichosis in 54%, increased hair on the face, 54% of patients headaches in 10%, swelling in the feet in 10% of women, heart palpitations in 4%, swelling around the eyes in 1%, and hair shedding in 44% of women, 22% of males. Other studies have showed that the risk of hair growth all over the face, hypertrichosis, is dose-dependent. If you start out with 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil, which is roughly equivalent to 2% solution, once a day. About 6% of women will get hypertrichosis. If you use 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil, like was used in this paper that I just reviewed in JAD case reports, 56% of women are expected to have hypertrichosis. 
the swelling in the feet is also dose-dependent. If you use 0.25 milligrams, which is sort of the lowest dose that you can get a compounding pharmacy to make up, 0.7% of women are going to say, I have swelling in my feet, my shoes don't fit the same way. But if you use 5 milligrams, like was used in this paper, 7.6% of patients will get pedal edema. And so some of these side effects are very much dose-dependent. So if you're going to use low-dose oral minoxidil, and you're a newbie at using it, start low. I tell the doctors that, that train with me, start out with 0.6 milligrams or 0.25 milligrams and set your cutoff in women at, at 1.25 max until you get more experience with the side effects. In men, set your cutoff at 2.5 milligrams max. As you get more experienced, you can sometimes go up the dose in women, 1.875, 2.5, that's pretty rare. In men, you can sometimes go up to 5 milligrams, but don't go up to 5 milligrams until you're really comfortable with using oral minoxidil in men. And don't go above 1.25 in women. You'll run into a lot of side effects that you're not comfortable with. You'll have patients with swollen feet, puffy eyelids. You'll have patients with heart palpitations. You'll have patients with a hair all over the face and body that they don't like. When do these side effects occur? Well, if you put a patient on oral minoxidil, heart rhythm abnormalities happen in days. You know, Doc, I had heart palpitations. It's an awful feeling. My heart beating out of my chest. That happens within days. Lightheadedness, dizziness, that happens within the first week. Headaches happen around the first month. But fluid retention, swelling in the feet, swelling around the eyelids, hypertrichosis, doesn't happen for three months. It's one of the reasons I really like this paper in JAD case reports is they went in three-month intervals. They started out 1.25 milligrams. Then they went up three months later because the patient was doing so well. Three months later, they went up again because the patient was doing so well. If you're going to move up on the dose, consider moving up in these three-month intervals. It's a wonderful lesson, and you will catch a sudden swelling in the feet if you do that. If you see a patient back two weeks later of starting oral minoxidil and they say, I'm doing really well, doc, no dizziness, no swelling in the feet, no hair growth on the face, you might conclude, wow, you're doing great. That's great. Let's go up. So glad you're doing well. Those side effects don't happen for another two months. And so don't go up until you're absolutely confident the patient's not going to have fluid retention and hypertrichosis. This is my professional opinion. I deal with a lot of minoxidil side effects, oral minoxidil side effects, every day. Emails, phone calls, lots of side effects. They can be managed often. But if you go slowly, go systematically, you can manage them more successfully and you can catch them before they occur. And the end result is a patient with better responses, a happier patient. It's terrifying to have hair growth all over the face. It's terrifying to have puffy eyelids that you can't see out of. It's terrifying to, don't, to not have shoes that fit. So go slow. So we use oral minoxidil in PCIA, or persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We use it in androgenetic hair loss, traction alopecia, chemotherapy alopecia. We use it in lichen plano pilaris. We use it in chronic telogen effluvium. We use it in manilothrix. We use it in alopecia areata. We use it in loose antigen syndrome. If you're a clinician, learn about it. It really can change the toolbox that you offer patients. But go slow. Go really slow. And that's my most important lesson. There are these two types of hair loss, temporary and persistent. And we're going to talk about another study looking at persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. Here, a study in JAD case reports in January looking at another subtype. Most patients with PCIA have a diffuse form, but we have this androgenetic hair loss type. We have this patchy type. We also have a type that resembles erosive pustular dermatosis. So let's take a look at this type. It's a new type, and it was described by this study by Cola and colleagues. They described a 70-year-old woman who developed PCIA after completing chemotherapy with paclitaxel. Again, paclitaxel is on our list of agents that can cause PCIA. Paclitaxel, docetaxel, cyclophosphamide, busulfan, cisplatinum, carboplatinum. It's nice to have a list in your mind of drugs that can cause this. She didn't just develop diffuse thinning. She developed thick, 
brown scaly plaques on the frontal and vertex scalp. Removal of these scales revealed a pustular base. A biopsy showed retention hyperkeratosis. A biopsy also showed that the sebaceous glands were still there. There were miniaturized hairs, but there were fewer hairs. There was no evidence of scarring alopecia, and there was no evidence of the histology of true erosive pustular dermatosis, which shows neutrophils, plasma cells, lymphocytes. But clinically, all of these thick scales and crusts and pustular-like eruptions clinically resembled erosive pustular dermatosis, so it's called a clinical variant. And again, this is available with the Creative Commons license through JAD case reports, so feel free to look online for this report. It's available free, permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia presenting with erosive pustular dermatosis-like retention hyperkeratosis. A remarkable presentation of thick brown scale all over the scalp which is quite terrifying when, when, when a patient experiences this. Not only are they experiencing hair loss, which cancer patients are told about and aware of, but they have this thick scale, which is terrifying to be experiencing. How did they treat it? Well, they treated it with doxycycline, sulfadiazine cream. They used salicylic acid and mineral oil to lift off this scale. And if you're not aware of this wonderful treatment anytime you see scale on the scalp. You can mix 6% salicylic acid into mineral oil. You tell a compounding pharmacy, please get some mineral oil, 200 milliliters of it, put 6% salicylic acid in it, mix it up, and give it to my patient. That is a wonderful treatment. It's messy, but it's a wonderful treatment to lift off scale. And so the patient to use 6% salicylic acid and mineral oil a topical steroid, they used ketoconazole shampoo, T-cell shampoo, and the scale disappeared. And so we have this new clinical variant, the erosive pustular dermatosis-like variant. And so we have six variants. We have a diffuse variant, hair loss all over. We have a variant of per persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia that looks like female pattern hair loss. We have one that looks like male pattern hair loss. We have one patchy that looks like alopecia areata. We have one scarring that looks like frontal fibrosing alopecia. And we have one erosive pustular dermatosis. Like, there's more on the way. There's no doubt about it. There's different chemotherapy drugs that are out there. The protocols are changing every year to, to help improve the destruction of cancer cells. And so with new drugs, new protocols, there's going to be new types of clinical presentations of PCIA. And so finally, let's talk about another study in the cancer literature. How do we prevent hair loss? How do we prevent temporary alopecia? How do we prevent PCIA? Well, one is with scalp cooling. And if you're not familiar with scalp cooling, I'd like you to know about it. It is a new treatment that cancer patients undergo with solid cancers to try to prevent losing hair. And so Yin and colleagues looked at how familiar are dermatologists with scalp cooling. Scalp cooling has a really important role to prevent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. These studies have been introduced into the medical literature now for the past five, six years. In 2015, Dignicap was FDA-approved, FDA-cleared in the U.S., and in 2017, the Paxman cooling system was FDA cleared. Europe has been far ahead of having these devices used in oncology hospitals, oncology clinics, cancer clinics. Canada, a little bit ahead as well. But Europe led the way with these devices. They were delayed in the U.S. because the FDA really wanted to be sure that by cooling the scalp, you don't increase the risk that a cancer cell hides out in the scalp and survives. And that's why the FDA really wanted these good studies done. And so these are devices that are worn around the time of chemotherapy, before, during, and after, to cool the scalp. And by cooling the scalp, you reduce the metabolism of hair follicles. They don't take up the drug as readily. And if they don't take up the chemotherapy drug there's a less chance the hair will fall out. 
If you're not familiar with some of the Dignicaps, the Dignicap study of 2015, you should know about it. There's a study of 101 patients, and 63% of patients lost less than half their hair. And that loss of less than half their hair meant these women didn't need to use a wig. And all women who in the study who didn't have scalp cooling lost more than half their hair. So in the Dignicap study, half of patients who had scalp cooling didn't need a wig. In patients that didn't get scalp cooling, they all needed a wig. In the Paxman trial, that was 95 patients. The Paxman trial was 95 patients. The Dignicap study was 101 patients. 50% of patients in the Paxman study lost less than half their hair and, and so didn't need a wig. And so these scalp cooling systems dramatically changed the amount of hair loss after chemotherapy. And so Yin and colleagues in 2022 looked at a survey of 82 board-certified dermatologists. 54 dermatologists ultimately agreed to complete the study. 70.4% were general dermatologists. 27.8% were specialized hair dermatologists. 22% of respondents were very familiar with scalp cooling. 66.7% were a little bit familiar with scalp cooling, but there's a lot they didn't quite know about it. And 11% were not familiar at all. 75% of respondents expressed an interest to have more education about scalp cooling. And of the respondents that were associated with a cancer center, 73.5% didn't really know the scalp cooling devices that their cancer center offered. And about 65% indicated that they would probably support their institution providing scalp cooling systems, or they would definitely support it. But not 65%, not 100%. The reasons for opposing scalp cooling systems were the efficacy of these devices, the safety concerns, which was raised by 16.7% of respondents, and side effects in 16.6% of respondents. A total of 81.5% of the 54 respondents somewhat or strongly agreed that the effects of hair loss on cancer patients were a major concern. So this study shows some important gaps in the delivery of knowledge about scalp cooling to dermatologists. Not all dermatologists are aware. 11% are completely unaware of the scalp cooling system, but two-thirds really have some significant gaps. They don't really understand a lot about it, but they're willing to learn about it. They want to know more. They crave more information. So that's really important information. 80% of participants in this study recognized that hair loss was distressing. But I think this study really points to the fact that not all dermatologists really realize the magnitude of distress that hair loss causes. And when you actually look at the data, one out of every five respondents didn't really appreciate fully the magnitude of concern that hair loss brings about. You may be aware, but 8% of cancer patients in prior studies decline chemotherapy because they don't want to lose their hair. In other studies, almost half of female cancer patients rate hair loss as the most traumatic part of the cancer chemotherapy experience. And so hair loss is very much a major concern of cancer patients, and one that is very devastating and affects their decision to partake in chemotherapy and is very much front and center in the psychological experience of the chemotherapy. And even though 80% of dermatologists in this study appreciated that, there were 20% of dermatologists that really didn't quite appreciate the full magnitude of extent that hair loss brings about. So I think that's important. Not all dermatologists are aware of this scalp cooling. There were some safety concerns that they raised. These devices still continue to be studied. They appear to be quite safe. They're quite effective in a large percentage of patients, especially lighter skin colored patients. As I reviewed in other videos, top 20 studies of 2021, we talked about the fact that scalp cooling might not be quite as effective in black women. That was a really important study to be aware of, but certainly in Caucasian women and lighter colored skin, where hair is thinner, finer, 
not as curly, that the scalp cooling devices fit properly and we can expect about 50% of patients to have a significant improvement in their saving of hair and their reduction of hair loss. Those are huge numbers and it's one of the top treatments that we have available. It's true they're not helpful in all patients, but they're effective in a large percentage of patients. They're not universally available. They're not universally covered by insurance, so they can be pricey. But I think as clinicians and I think as specialists, we need to be aware of these devices. I think patients undergoing chemotherapy need to be aware of them. If they're not covered by insurance, they need to be aware that these are options that they can purchase themselves and they can dramatically decrease the chances that they'll have hair loss. And so that's it for this week. We've reviewed allergic contact dermatitis with topical minoxidil, and we've talked about topical allergies in general. We talked about the FENCE mnemonic, and when you see a patient with what you think is an allergy to something they're using on their scalp, look over the fence and ask and look at the face and forehead, F, E, eyelids, N, neck, C, chest, E, ears. This is where the rashes often show up as well. And so unless you ask about the F-E-N-C-E and look over the fence, you're going to miss some potential cases of allergic contact dermatitis. We talked about this incredible feel that's emerged since 2008, and that's the use of beta blockers in treating infantile hemangiomas. Pulse dye lasers are often combined with beta blockers. Pulse dye lasers are used for a variety of vascular lesions, and we need to be aware that they can cause hair loss. We talked about oral pigmentation with hydroxychloroquine and the fact that the hard palate, this part of the mouth just behind the teeth, the front teeth, is a site of pigmentation with hydroxychloroquine, affecting about 7-10% to of users. It can happen after several years, doesn't necessarily happen immediately. And we talked about this important subject of PCIA, or persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We talked about a remarkable study of 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil in a woman with PCIA and a dramatic improvement in her hair. We talked about the fact that five milligrams might not be the appropriate dose for all patients, that side effects of hypertrichosis, of pedal edema, of swelling around the eyelids, of tachycardia, dizziness can occur, and we need to be aware of this. But going slow in three-month interval is probably the way to go. But to review the use of oral minoxidil is valuable uh, for treating a variety of hair loss disorders, and we talked about many. We talked about a new variant of, of PCIA, the erosive pustular dermatosis-like variant, with a patient presenting with thick brown scales on the scalp, which resolved quite readily with salicylic acid and mineral oil, topical steroids, doxycycline, and other treatments as well. And we talked about some important knowledge gaps in the use of scalp cooling for chemotherapy-induced alopecia. This concludes Season 1. We have reviewed over the last 12 weeks some 100 studies in our 12 episodes together. I hope these were helpful for you. Season 2 starts up May 16th, and I'll look forward to seeing you back Monday, May the 16th for Season 2, and I hope you'll join me for another season through the summer of evidence-based hair.